Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I hope all of you had a good Easter holiday. I know I did. It went by fast, but the older we get, life moves pretty quickly. But I tell you what I have enjoyed um, that hasn't uh, gone too quickly is this discussion on Brilliant Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse by Eric J. Dolan. I have no doubts that all of you who have been listening to this particular series have learned a great deal about lighthouses that you probably didn't know about uh, before. And when I read this book a few years back, I was in your all's uh, shoes as well. I learned more about lighthouses than I ever knew before. So, we all have something in common, and that is we've learned a great deal about lighthouses that we didn't know before, and whenever we do see lighthouses nearby or from a distance, we can appreciate them all the more for what they stand for, besides being um, a tourist landmark. So, in this uh, discussion, or rather I should say for this uh, podcast episode, we're going to learn about the keepers and their lives. We've got a lot to cover, so fasten your seatbelts and let's get prepared to enjoy the ride. Our lead-off question is the following. Has it always been easy to assume that lighthouse keepers had significant amounts of leisure time daily to sit back and take in that majestic scenery, or let alone take in the majestic sceneries up close as well as far away? In other words, did the lighthouse keepers each day have the chance to live the good life? I would like to think yes, but realistically, for lighthouse keepers, while they're, while no two days were alike at their job, but their lives were not confined to one of relative leisure, or I should say the simple life. They had a very, very um, tough job. And we're going to learn more about their duties here momentarily, but just remember, folks, when we see artistic pictures of a lighthouse from a distance and, you know, people on their boats going by, it's easy to think, oh, that whoever's manning the lighthouse is probably sitting back and taking in all the beautiful scenery around themselves. They could be, but just remember... It's only temporarily. They are doing so many other things to ensure that not only the lighthouse is functioning, but how about boats coming in and out of the harbor? After all, if it weren't for a lighthouse, folks, boats, mariners, crew members, don't think for one second that their lives would be in danger without these brilliant beacons to guide them through moments of uncertainty. Here's another question I'll throw at you all. What had become lighthouse keepers' primary duties by the late 19th and early 20th centuries? To maintain a good light and a fog signal. However, no two lighthouses operated the same. As the number of keepers performing duties, per the duties I mentioned uh, a moment ago, those duties also depended upon various circumstances. So it is easy to be led to believe, 
and even I did too, until reading this book a few years ago, that each lighthouse only had perhaps one or two keepers at best. Well, I think we're going to be surprised here in a moment to find out that uh, that's not, that has not always been the case. So lighthouses, for example, that had smaller order lenses and no fog signals to take care of had really one keeper at best. Lighthouses, on the other hand, with larger lenses, including multiple fog signals, could have up to five people. You have the head keeper and then the assistants ranked in order based upon service and experience. So there we have it, folks. Um, lighthouses with larger lenses and multiple fog signals are going to require more than one person to get the job done. So I think we should find out now, especially with lighthouses involving multiple keepers, and what kind of work assignments they all would have had. Because um, it's fair to say that um, some of the keepers could have been assigned to one task, and the other half would have been assigned to um, separate tasks. So lighthouses with multiple keepers saw work divided into departments. For example, let's take the first department. What would the keeper have done in the first department? He or she focused on the lighting fixture. I know I mentioned she just a moment ago, but believe it or not, we're going to find out, folks, here in a little bit, that women themselves were very involved in this profession. Not just temporarily, but long term. But let's focus on what the first department would have done. The keeper, as I said a moment ago, being either he or she, their focus was on the lighting fixture. So before sunrise, the keeper had to climb the stairs to the lantern room. And why would the keeper have worn a linen apron? I mean, wouldn't it... I know, I'm sure some of you would think, okay, well, the keeper could wear any kind of clothing. On the other hand, though, the clothing you wear can't always ensure that the equipment you're working with will uh, protect the uh, perhaps the glass surface. How so? Well, let's find out. Okay, if the keeper is wearing a linen apron, the reason for that is because a linen apron alone would keep lens from being scratched by contact with rough clothes. Okay, if you're wearing rough clothes, the greater the likelihood of an object like the lens could, if it came in contact with uh, with rough clothing, the greater the chances of the lens itself or the lenses itself being um, scratched, which um, would have an impact on um, the well-being of the lens itself, not just short-term, but long-term. Once the lamp was extinguished at sunrise, now remember folks, sunrise, morning, you know, the, the light has been on all night. You know, after all, ships are coming through the waters, say around the Great Lakes, the Atlantic Ocean, Pacific Ocean, uh, the Gulf of Mexico, these ships are coming left and right. 
they've got to have something to see at nighttime. Otherwise, they're going to run aground and hit um, a reef or what we refer to as a shoal at the bottom. So once the lamp was extinguished at sunrise, the keeper would hang curtains around the inside of the lantern room. Why would the keeper need to hang curtains around the inside of the lantern room? Well, don't we have uh, curtains um, around our windows? Is there a reason for that? Absolutely. It keeps the, sun rays, the sun's rays from damaging the lens to ruining what's called the, the litharge. I'm sure most of you probably don't know what litharge means. I didn't know what it meant until I read the book and reread what was necessary for this uh, podcast discussion. But the, the litharge itself is a lead-based compound which holds the glass prisms in place within the lens's brass frame. Okay, so the reason why we have um, curtains being hung around the inside of the lantern room is the following, folks. How about preventing a fire? Well, I would have thought, okay, if a fire is going to occur inside a lighthouse, it would be because of, you know, one knocking a lantern over with the candle on it, only to catch a room ablaze. Turns out that light itself, folks, can travel through a Fresnel lens in both directions. Okay, at nighttime the lamp is on, light travels out toward the distant point, the most distant point being the horizon. At daytime the light is off. Without the curtains, the sun's rays would reflect and refract through the lens, refraction being bending, and basically it would mess up the whole system, the internal system itself, and all of that, that light, that is the sun's rays, all of that light would focus the energy on what, folks? On a, on a particular lamp. How about an oil or a kerosene lamp? That's pretty dangerous, folks. You know, that's um, got liquid in it. And if the temperature is right and the sun's rays are just right at that right position, at, a right, at, a, at an exact perfect angle, guess what? With the right temperature, boom, you've got yourself a potential disaster. In other words, the lamp could burst and then you've got an oil sp spills everywhere to where you've got a fire. And think about this too, folks. We don't have, we may not, depending on what time of the year we're, in terms of um, actual year, in terms of date, you know, 1876 is when the telephone was invented, but I don't believe everybody had telephones um, installed at lighthouses just yet. So the bottom line is, is that there has to be a system in place to ensure the safety of the Fresnel lens, the safety of all of the glass itself, that is the glass prisms within, in, in place within the lens's brass frame. Um, you've also got to make sure that the lenses themselves are not scratched by contact with rough clothes. So the bottom line is there is a, um, there is a guideline that has to be um, or a, some form of a protocol that has to be performed each day to ensure that the lights themselves are safe short and long term. Remember folks, there's more to being a light keeper than just turning the light on and off. As 
for the second department, their tasks ranged from cleaning walls and to floors of lantern and watch rooms. How about cleaning the balconies surrounding the lantern along with glass panes inside and out? Well, you know, think about this. We wash windows to get rid of um, smears. Well, you've got to do the same thing, too, with the lighthouse. After all, you never know when an inspector is going to come in. And you want to make sure that you're taking care of this thing, because if you're not taking good care of it, either you'll get demoted or you'll get fired and get replaced by someone else who has the skills to take care of a lighthouse the way it ought to be. At what time were keepers to have completed their tasks by in the morning? I'll give you a, num a hint, folks. Your choices for time in the morning are the following. Option A would be 9 a.m., option B, 10 a.m., option C, 11 a.m. The answer is the following. Option B, 10 a.m. So that is the precise time when keepers were to have completed their tasks for the morning. How about this one? Were watches established at lighthouses where there were multiple keepers staffed on site? Absolutely. The shifts themselves would often range from four to six hours when keeper on duty would be up in the watch room below the lantern room tending to the light when necessary. After all, folks, you know, someone can't be, one person alone can't be staying up the entire night to, um, to uh, look out for, um, for the safety and well-being of ships coming and going. You know, people do need to rest. And that's why you need to have someone else come in on duty to uh, relieve that person so that when it comes time for their shift again, they will be ready to go when necessary. Now, what about uh, lighthouses that were manned by a single individual? How many times would they need to visit the light uh, in order to ensure that everything was safe? Twice. And that was usually between 8 p.m. and sunrise. However, during storms, the keeper, him or herself, would remain in the tower throughout the night. Storms at night were when mariners depended upon a steady and strong light. Of course, mariners depended on light at all times throughout the night, but how about when you had a bad storm? Yeah, you're going to need a steady, strong light because you never know what the weather is going to do in an instant moment. It's, you know, it's like for those of you who are with me when uh, I discussed um, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald or the wreck of the Mighty Fitz about the Edmund Fitzgerald by um, uh, back in uh, this past summer, uh, Michael Schumacher's book, the month of November back in 1975 when the Fitzgerald sank, uh, Gordon Lightfoot's famous song, uh, being the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, he said, um, the legend lives on from the Chippewa on down to the big lake they call Gitchagumi, meaning for Lake Superior. Um, then he goes on to basically just say that um, something about how um, the, when the skies of November turn gloomy, in other words, that um, nothing is um, guaranteed on Lake Superior, especially um, towards the end of the year, most notably November being the... Um, the month that history has shown has claimed many of ships on that um, great lake. Uh, but basically, um, 
you could be uh, traveling by water, your ship that is on, on a nice calm day, but you never know what can change in a matter of a few hours. And as nighttime comes along, yes, mariners are going to need that strong light, even in the most dire of circumstances. So that's why it's so important that the uh, light be visible at night, because without it, ships are at their own mercy. Well, what were some other duties that lighthouse keepers had? How about replacing broken glass panes? How about repairing to painting lighthouses periodically? How about fixing lighthouse boats? What about filling out paperwork, which included monthly reports on lighthouses' condition, which also meant physical damage as well as shipwrecks that occurred nearby? After all, you know, when a shipwreck occurs, that is a big thing. And, of course, one would say, well, how would that impact the lighthouse if the lighthouse itself wasn't damaged? Well, after all, you know, the lighthouse is responsible for uh, ensuring that um, the light is on and that the fog signals are working. But if for some reason the ships are wrecking, even with the light being on, maybe something else needs to be done. Maybe there needs to be a better um, lighting system itself. Those, just, those are just a few questions to think about, but they do need to be noted so that the Lighthouse Board, or I should say the Lighthouse Service, can come up with better strategies on how to improve the safety of ships that are going in that uh, particular vicinity. Keepers themselves also maintained daily logbooks, which included the recording of weather conditions as well as official visits. And when I mean by official visits, how about, you know, the lighthouse inspectors? True or false, did lighthouses have to be staffed 365 days a year? Yes. Unless they were automated or located on the Great Lakes region where most lighthouses were closed during the winter. And I'm sure many of you are wondering, how could Great Lakes lighthouses be closed during the winter? Well, the lakes froze. And if they froze, how are any ships going to move? I mean, how are any ships going to get around? They, they just won't. But their light, the lighthouses alone will still need to be on, they just it would be automated. Let me let me ask you all this question. Um, number one, uh, how many states are surrounded by um, all five Great Lakes, or let alone bodies of water that we know as the Great Lakes? That answer is eight. Do any of you know which of the eight states are surrounded by the Great Lakes? Well, let's start in the Northeast with New York State. We'll go to then Pennsylvania. We'll go to Ohio. How about Indiana? Michigan? Illinois? Wisconsin? Minnesota? Well, which Great Lakes are in New York State? Ontario? Erie? I've seen, my wife and I have seen both of those Great Lakes. For Pennsylvania, Lake Erie. Obviously with Erie, Pennsylvania, Northwest PA. For Ohio, it's Lake Erie, Cleveland. How about then going to uh, Indiana, Lake Michigan? And then we go to uh, Illinois, you've got Lake Michigan. Minnesota, Lake Superior. Wisconsin, you've got Lake Michigan, 
Lake Superior, and maybe Lake Huron. But which of the states, which of these eight states, folks, has more lighthouses than any other state in the nation? And this state itself is surrounded by more than two Great Lakes bodies of water. How about Michigan? Michigan is home to more lighthouses than any other state in the nation. Does anybody want to take a guess at exactly just how many lighthouses there are? I'll give you a number. It's between 120 and 130. The answer is 124. The state itself is surrounded by four of the five Great Lakes, being Superior, Huron, Michigan, and Erie. The Great Lakes alone have over 200 active lighthouses guiding ships around roughly 11,000 miles of coastline. That's a lot of miles of coastline, folks. But for all, for all five Great Lakes to have a total of 200 active lighthouses, that would mean at best maybe 40 lighthouses per each Great Lake. But we know that um, Lake, Lake Michigan, for example, I found out has at least over 100 um, lighthouses, or between 100 and 105 lighthouses around uh, Lake Michigan. Now, I've, my wife and I have also been to Lake Michigan as well. The only two Great Lakes we haven't been to are Superior and Huron. I would like to see those other two uh, Great Lakes one day. And I, ironically, you could fit, Lake Superior is the largest of the five Great Lakes. You could fit um, Ontario, Erie, um, Huron, and Michigan all into Lake Superior. That's how big uh, the lake, that Great Lake is. And I want to say its depth is probably close to 700 feet below the surface. That may not seem like a big number, but I did read that in uh, Michael Schumacher's The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. As a matter of fact, uh, true or false, how many Great Lakes um, border uh, Canada? In other words, how many of the uh, five Great Lakes uh, share a border with Canada? Four. Ontario, Erie, Huron, Superior. That means, folks, Lake Michigan is the only one of the five Great Lakes that does not touch Canada. Whenever a keeper was away from their post, what protocols had to be in place? An assistant keeper had to remain at the lighthouse. If there was no assistant on site, either a family member or someone hired by the keeper had to stay on duty. For lighthouses with multiple keepers, work shifts were established to provide equal breaks. So remember, folks, you know, running a lighthouse, it's not like a business where, you know, it's where the sign says open and then it says closed. You don't do that with a lighthouse. If you were to put a sign up that said closed for X number of hours at a lighthouse and no one was there and an emergency happened nearby uh, the lighthouse where a ship, say, uh, struck a ground and no one was there to help the crew... I think it's fair to say that that lighthouse keeper would lose, would rightfully lose his, his or her job. So the bottom line is this, folks, is that no, regardless of a situation where the head lighthouse keeper needs to leave for whatever justifiable reason it is for part-time for the day, there has to be someone else on duty 
to take over. Otherwise, you've got some serious, egregious violations. Given lighthouses were public structures, that is, owned by the government, was it inevitable for tourists to visit them? Yes. Keepers were to serve as ambassadors by offering tours during, the, during daylight hours, as long as it didn't interfere with other essential duties. By the mid-19th century and into the early 20th century, lighthouses had become intriguing symbols to America's maritime legacy. Thanks to the increase in the number of new, of new newspapers, along with magazines, which focused on engineering feats to, say, daring rescues. So as our nation has expanded, folks, you know, we're in, into the middle of the 19th century. Um, you know, Texas has already been admitted into the Union. California gets admitted into the Union in 1850. You know, yes, when I think of westward expansion, I think of Lewis and Clark from their expedition beginning in 1803, right after we uh, bought the Louisiana Territory from uh, France, which basically doubled the size or and would eventually double the population of the United States when Thomas Jefferson was president. But it is fair to say that even westward expansion itself involves um, not just the admission of states into the Union, like Texas and California, but also adding lighthouses to those states. And from a previous podcast, I had talked about two lighthouses in Texas around Galveston and uh, Port O'Connor that um, served a vital role um, before and during the Civil War. So, not only just with westward expansion, but as... um, but as some states, especially up north, are expanding their population, that means lighthouses need to be um, included as well. And, you know, think about this, folks. You know, when we think of vacations in the 19th century, for example, we're not talking about going cross-country. We could be talking about, say, a day trip. You know, a day trip that obviously may not involve a car because cars aren't around just yet, but maybe going by horse and buggy, uh, to to the mainland being the village and the lighthouse is nearby and hey you know mom and dad want to sh- would like for their children to have the opportunity to see the lighthouse and if it just works out right for the keeper then yes the keeper should be allowed to um, give the family a tour after all you know these structures are brilliant beacons as I've said before they um, they have um, now become an integral part of uh, people's lives, not just those who are in the maritime profession, but those who um, live near them and want to know more about what, about just how um, unique they are and how they um, play such a vital role in everyday life. After all, it is probably fair to say that by in the mid-19th century and going into the early 20th century that the magazines that are out there now have pictures of um, of romantic um, lifestyle where you know people are running a lighthouse and 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 enjoy the majestic scenery around them. But yet, some people still forget that while yes, you can enjoy that scenery, they still have to uh, ensure that the job gets done each day. And if there was one visitor 
to lighthouses whom keepers didn't always enjoy seeing, then who exactly was that person? How about that lighthouse inspector? I'm not going to make a comparison, but um, but I do know this. Uh, for any of you who watch the news, and sometimes when we watch the news in the evening, we see um, we hear about the restaurant report. Health inspectors come in, sometimes unannounced, and they'll write up... Um, anywhere from three to five critical violations. And then when they come back a week later, those or, or a day or a day or two later, those um, write-ups in terms of violations were um, removed because the problems were taken care of. Well, it turns out that uh, there were very few problems when lighthouse inspectors did come. While, yes, at times it may have been unannounced, there have not been very many uh, records shown that there were uh, conflicts between the innkeeper, the uh, keepers and the uh, inspectors who came. So what would have been some of the things that the uh, inspectors would have really wanted to pay careful attention to? Well, for starters, they would have come about two times or more per year, but they came by to see firsthand how well the keepers had been performing their duties. The inspection duties alone ranged from making sure log books and other personal document records were in order, as well as keepers' living quarters to storage areas. So think about this. You know, how about, you know, living quarters? It's kind of like, you know, our our bedroom, our den. You know, the keepers, the inspectors do have a right to know how the keepers are taking care of things, not just with the... Um, the physical well-being of the uh, light structures themselves, but also how um, the keepers tend to things on a daily basis. It's one thing to take care of the light properly, but if you're not taking care of the uh, storage area or your living quarters properly, that could get you a write-up. You know, then the uh, inspector himself would have a right to say, hey, if you're, it's one thing to take care of the light properly, but if you're not taking care of everything else, then how can I trust you? to do this job overall. So think about those folks. You never know when the inspector is going to show up, but you've got to be on your A-game all the time. And if improper actions did take place, such as falsifying records to drunkenness or sleeping on the job, the keeper was either demoted, meaning stripped of his um, current position and, um, and uh, given a position of lower-tier status, if the demotion part wasn't um, used, then how about firing? But the most serious violation, or let alone I should say the most serious violations, resulted in autom that would often result in automatic dismissal were allowing lights to go out to not operating a fog signal when visibility was poor. Okay, so if your lights went out, you needed to do everything there was in your power to try to f come up with a plan B. So in other words, I think it's fair to say that um, that if you had a storage area on site, and most lighthouses did, you would have had a backup um, light, or what we might say a backup Fresnel lens. Now if your light was damaged, you better fill out a report in enough time so that, um, so that the nearby depot station can get you fitted with a new light so that you don't have uh, problems long term. So the bottom line is this, you've got a duty to perform, or not just duty, you've got duties to perform, and if you don't take them seriously, 
you should be rightfully dismissed and then be replaced by someone else who will fulfill the roles that you are not um, living up to your promise on. While the majority of the lighthouse keepers were in fact men, did women themselves have opportunities to serve as keepers? Yes, they did, folks. And records have shown, per lighthouse historians Mary Louise and J. Candace Clifford, that 140 women served as head keepers between 1776 and to 1939. What I like about 1776, folks, is that, of course, that's the year that we officially declared our separation from England. So it also tells you, folks, that women were doing so much more than, um, than just sitting back and um, tending to the homes. They were actually out on the forefront taking over roles that their husbands were um, doing beforehand. Who's Hannah Thomas? She was the first woman to earn the position or let alone the title or role of head lighthouse keeper. Her husband was John Thomas, whom was the original keeper of the Plymouth or what was known as the Garnett Point Lighthouse in Massachusetts in the early 1770s. However, uh, John went off to war. And what war are we talking about, folks? The American Revolution? When he went off to war, Hannah herself assumed the official duties. She became chief keeper of the lighthouse as a result of her husband's death during the war. She remained in the position until 1790, being the year that the lighthouse itself was transferred to the federal government. Remember, folks, Congress passed the Lighthouse Act on August 7th of 1789. Not all lighthouses were transferred over right away, but this particular lighthouse was a part of that uh, gradual transformation process, which did occur in the year 1790. So Hannah Thomas, folks, made history by being the first woman to earn the role of head lighthouse keeper. It didn't happen overnight, but it happened as a result of her husband making um, valiant sacrifices to ensure that, um, that our country would no longer um, live under uh, tyranny, harsh rule, along with um, improper representation, along with um, basically being governed by a system that was not fair, a system that um, pretty much stripped people of their most essential rights. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, given that there were 140 women between 1776 and 1839 whom served as head keepers, how many women served as assistant keepers? I'll give you a number. Let's try between uh, 200 and 200 between 200 to 250. Does anybody want to take a a guess? How about 240? And that's a very, very good number. All of these uh, women who went on to be assistant keepers had worked for their husbands, fathers, or mothers, and they received the same pay as male counterparts had. That, to me, right there would be a good example of an early version of what was passed in the early 1960s uh, being the Equal Pay Act where women finally got the same uh, proper pay for 
work that was also done by men as well. Here's something very important to note out, to mention. If a woman's husband, being the head keeper, died while on the job, was it imperative for the widow, being the wife, to have the right to be appointed to her husband to her late husband's position? Yes. Why so? If not, the wife herself would face severe financial hardships in regards to not only just supporting herself, but how about a family? You know what this reminds me of, folks? Whenever my wife and I go to Williamsburg, Colonial Williamsburg, we're often reminded that um, a handful of the taverns, Williamsburg had 15 taverns at one time, but a handful of those taverns were run by women, women whose husbands at one time had been the head proprietor, or I should say the head owner of the establishment, and when the husband died, and if, the, and if there were children in the picture, the, um, the House of Burgesses, along with the royal governor, they believed, they truly felt in their best interests that the, um, that the widow ought, ought to be allowed to um, take over the tavern, given that she needed to find a way not only to support herself, but to bring in income that would uh, help, help support her children's well-being, not just short-term, but long-term. So I see two very unique similarities here, folks. Um, not just, uh, you know, yes, one could say, oh, taverns were at a different time, but no, taverns existed even into the 19th century and into the early 20th century. So for a woman to run a lighthouse as a result of her husband's passing reminds me a lot of how a woman ran a tavern in the death of her husband, regardless of whether children were um, were present or not. Did lighthouse keepers have time for other interests on the side? I, I would have to say yes. Well, what are some of these interests that lighthouse keepers might have had? Some took part with painting. Some had interests like stamp collecting. On the other hand, other lighthouse keepers had side jobs to supplement for extra income, like being a tailor, which would have involved working, in, uh, working with clothing. Some became uh, fishermen on the side. And then you had some who were justices of the peace. There you have it, folks. Uh, you know, yes, a lighthouse keeper, his or her line of work probably would, I'd say 95% of the time or, or more, would be revolved around the lighthouse itself. But when you do have that free time, you certainly ought to be allowed to make the most of it. And many lighthouse keepers were big into gardening, especially growing foods like vegetables and fruits. Well, didn't the government help out lighthouse keepers and their families? Sure they did. But lighthouse keepers were empowered to also be able to do more for themselves, which I think is great. Because, while well, yes, the government was there to help them. But at the same time, you know, 
there's that old saying, government can only do but so much. And yes, some can say that's a good thing. Others can say that that's a not so good thing. But to give the lighthouse keepers the power to be able to garden on their own, not just growing plant like flowers, but to grow foods like vegetables and fruits, I think that's a good, that's a very good step. After all, we have to remember a lot of lighthouses are located in remote places, so it's not like these people have a nearby convenience store to go to to pick up um, food supplies that might last them for a couple of weeks. And is it fair to say that uh, pets like cats and dogs that we know today live in our homes were commonly found at lighthouses? Yes, they were. Cats, for example, would often kill the rats and the mice whom had the potential to raid the lighthouse's pantry. It does pay to have um, cats uh, to be able to take care of those problems. After all, um, I don't know if the lighthouse keepers would have uh, been able to have um, had mouse traps in play, but thank heavens the cats could finish the job. Were many of America's uh, lighthouses going into the early 20th century isolated from the mainland? Yes, they were. There were um, some very unique challenges regarding isolation from the mainland. One of them, for example, that really posed the biggest of challenges to the keepers' families involved access to education. You know, education is a very critical tool for all people because it does, it does, it can really serve as a guiding force as to how far we can go in life. But we also must remember, too, that for lighthouse keepers and, and their families who lim, whom lived very far from civilization, that is, in the most isolated of places, their options were limited, but they were also clever at the same time. Many of these keepers often would send their children to boarding schools. In other words, by staying at a boarding school, the child, the child or the children wouldn't have to worry about um, how they were going to get home on a daily basis. They would stay at, at one particular school for X amount of time, but the keepers, the head keepers, being that of a man, would often, in, in many instances, they would uh, sometimes send their wives to live in town where the children could attend school. So this way, the, the family, the greater family, could still be together without enduring long-term separation. On the other hand, many of these children who lived in remote places along with their families were often homeschooled. So there really was no particular one way that um, families went about schooling their children. They, they were clever to find different ways, but in the end, the children did get educated, and that really is, um, that to me is a very important thing. Besides education, um, illness and injury were other major challenges. All right, let's suppose you live in an isolated area. Let's say all of a sudden a loved one had a heart attack or a stroke, and those are life-threatening medical matters, what could the keeper do? Okay, we don't have telephones, perhaps, just yet. We don't have um, walkie-talkies. But if a, a, a passing vessel came nearby, the keeper, him or herself, could flag down that passing vessel 
where they themselves could get the word out to the nearest doctor available or have the vessel itself transport the patient to the closest doctor available on site. So think about this, folks. Perhaps um, the uh, passing vessel would have been like the equivalent of, a, um, of an emergency um, ER helicopter that we know of today that will uh, go to um, remote places to uh, transport people who are in um, dire need of medical care. You know, even my dad once said, um, my, my father had an aunt and uncle who lived um, out on a road that's not too terribly far from where we live, but many, many years ago, as my dad described it, uh, the road was called Otterdale Road. My dad said it was nice to be there during the day, but at nighttime you would never want to be there because if your car broke down, it would be at least three hours at best before another car showed up. And we must keep in mind that, you know, the way my dad's describing this, this was back in the 1950s and into the uh, early 60s. You know, think about it. We didn't have, there were no cell phones. And if you, if your car blew a tire in the middle of the night, you really were up a creek. So this is the same situation that we're talking about here with, um, where if you, if a family member has a, a life-threatening situation, that vessel that can, the nearest nearby vessel that's coming along, if you can get the word out to them, then they can almost serve as like a makeshift ambulance or an emergency, like the equivalent of a makeshift ambulance or an emergency helicopter, where they can get the patient to the closest doctor available on site per the direction they're going in. I don't know how people did it back then, but you know what? They didn't know any better, but they, but they used the resources they had available and they got by with what they had. And in some instances, or not in some, in a lot of instances, they might have been a lot smarter than we have ever really given them credit for. And maybe to a degree, they were probably a lot smarter in how they went about solving their problems compared to what many people do in today's unstable world. What became the greatest measure introduced? Because, you know, it is fair to say that loneliness is very prevalent, not just in the most isolated of areas, but how about in areas that, um, that aren't as um, isolated, but loneliness can happen. Loneliness can happen to anyone at any given time. But what, was, what would become the greatest measure introduced to reduce the overall state of loneliness, most notably in remote lighthouses? How about radios? Why radios? What, what, have they, what, what can they do? Well, let me give you all a little brief history here. In 1925, starting out, a, a woman in New York, we don't know her name, but what we do know is that she was moved by stories of lonely keepers. So she decided to take it upon herself to donate, as a starting number, 25 radios to multiple lighthouses. And when the government caught on to this idea, they decided to take it upon themselves to start getting the word out by um, funding uh, charitable organizations whom went about donating uh, radios. And it got to the point where 300 radios 
and more were donated to hundreds of lighthouses. The radios not only provided great means of entertainment, but the radios were very essential in getting the word out with uh, weather-related matters. How about weather reports regarding storm preparation? In other words, an incoming storm could be coming in. But with the advance notice of a radio, now the lighthouse keeper can have anywhere from, say, 24 hours or even more hours in advance to get ready for the, un for the unexpected. As a matter of fact, folks, uh, it wasn't until the late 19th century that the National Weather, S Weather Service was created. However, its precursor was known as the uh, Signal Service. So it wasn't until about 1881 that we get the National Weather Service established. So just remember, folks, in the years before 1881, there was no uh, National Weather Service um, established to where um, a bulletin would come up and say, you know, the National Weather Service located out of this station has issued a, a severe warning for the severe thunderstorm warning for the following areas. And also the uh, radios themselves uh, also helped um, ships. In other words, they warned ships of deteriorating conditions. So everyone in the maritime industry was had now greatly benefited from radios you know yes gov the government has done obviously a lot of stuff to help lighthouse keepers but how about everyday ordinary people and we must keep in mind folks before the great depression hit there were many in this country and there's nothing wrong with this because it it worked this way for a number of years Charitable institutions like the church and just in uh, private organizations were the ones that often looked after those who were less fortunate. It really wasn't until the Great Depression came along in the aftermath of the stock market crash in 1929 that the federal government finally steps in and starts um, doing more to help those less fortunate. And while there was nothing wrong with that, we just need to keep in mind that for many of years, the church, not just one church, but churches in general, were really seen as uh, the charitable institutions that actually looked after the destitute and the poor and went as far as um, providing essential donations to help those improve their current state of condition. Many lightkeepers, to end this uh, podcast episode, I, it is very, very um, fair to say that many lighthouse keepers were very satisfied with their job, considering a good majority remained keepers for decades. There were many of keepers who were um, who worked in their in their posts for forty years. They loved what they did. And the mission itself was very simple, folks. That was keeping the mariners safe. How so? Keeping the light on at nighttime. Ensuring that the fog signals were working when visibility was at its worst. Folks, we've covered a lot of ground on lighthouse keepers and their lives. 
Their lives are not dull, folks. No two days are alike. They're out there making all kinds of sacrifices to ensure that the ships coming in and out are safe, that they're not going to run aground, hit a shoal. They're also ensuring that, um, that the structures themselves will thrive, not just short-term, but long-term. After all, it's one thing for our country to grow, but in order for our country to grow and prosper, its beacons need to be an example of a shining star. And that they have become, because had it not been for the Lighthouse Board that was established in 1852 and the changes that George Putnam had made, who knows what, what would have become of America's lighthouses. Yes, some could have said that they might still be seen as brilliant, but how brilliant would they have truly become? It takes the right people at the right time to step up and make all the difference in the world. Whether it's government or just everyday ordinary people distributing technological items like radios to help reduce loneliness, to making lighthouse keepers' lives better when it comes to um, storms or deteriorating conditions. We all have a role to play in ensuring that our lighthouses are safe, not just today in the present, but in the future. So whenever you go somewhere and you see a lighthouse along the coast, just know how vital its history has served mankind over the last 300 years. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon. And when I'm on the air again next, we could be talking about anything ranging from um, heroic um, rescue missions that lighthouse keepers performed. We could be talking about perhaps the the marvel the marvel of uh, engineering feats. But how about I surprise you all? And that might not be a bad thing, too. But I know that when I am on the air again next, we're going to have even more exciting information to discuss. Thank you again for listening, and I appreciate all of you who have um, been there with me since June of last year. I cannot tell you how much it means. Thank you, and if you know of anybody who is interested in coming to Anchor Podcast, tell them it's free, the opportunities are limitless, and the results go beyond the sky ceiling. They won't regret it for one minute. Take care and stay safe.